The Counterculture Hour with host V. Vale, produced by Marion Wallace for Research TV. Today's guest, cyberpunk writer Rudy Rucker. Rudy Rucker. Thanks, Vale. It's nice to be here in your, your cool North Beach apartment, right next to the Beat Museum. Yeah, for and a tour. City Lights books. Yeah. Yeah, well, I used to work at City Lights, so it was kind of the world's shortest commute. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, yeah, you're a legendary yourself. I've been in San Francisco for 25 years, and right away when I got here, you were the, the person to find out about. Gee, thanks, Rudy. With the awesome research issues. Well, you've, you know, you're down in history, as I said, a founding father of cyberpunk, and for those people too young to know what the word means, how would you define that? It was sort of a reaction in the same way that punk was maybe sort of a reaction to glam rock, arena rock, hair metal, this sort of overblown, overproduced kind of music. There was some science fiction in the late 70s was a little like that. You'd have these lumbering novels about hereditary aristocrats who are colonels in the Space Navy, you know, and there. It didn't really relate to the person in the street. So that was uh, Bruce Sterling and William Gibson and me and John Shirley were maybe four of the main people doing cyberpunk at that time. And I was very happy to be involved because I grew up uh, really, well, sort of idolizing the beat writers and Ginsburg, Jack Kerouac, Gregory Corso, Burroughs, and William Burroughs was really my favorite writer. So the, at one point I was even saying we could make a, a map between the four cyberpunks and the four beats. So I, I would get to be Burroughs and uh, Gibson would be Kerouac because he was, he writes very beautifully and also probably sold the most books. Bruce Sterling would be Ginsburg because of his love of political activism. And then John Shirley would be Gregory Corso, the sort of really offbeat, strange kind of writer. Wow. I was the oldest cyberpunk too, so just as Burroughs was oh. the oldest beat. Wow. I certainly wouldn't have ever thought of that on my own. The the four and the four, the four beats and the four cyberpunks. Yeah, I think there definitely are connections as between undergrounds, as Bruce Connor once said, all undergrounds are the same. Well, I mean, they might look superficially different, but they're always against the status quo of the time. Yeah, there's sort of a tradition that goes down. You have the beats, the hippies, the punks, the grungers, and I think today maybe, I was asking, your friend's son, and he was saying that they call themselves hipsters. Well, actually, all the so-called hipsters that are my 20-something interns, they rail against that word. I'm not a hipster. Well, <laughs> you often would hear hippies saying they weren't hippies, too. Yeah. And punks, they're yeah. not punks. Yeah, it gets sort of complex. People don't always want to be labeled. Yeah. I think if you have any brain in your head, you never want to be labeled. Well, actually, I was happy to be labeled a cyberpunk because oh. my career was not taking off like a rocket. So to be associated with any sort of movement 
gave me a little more visibility. Oh, that's true. I mean, instead of just being this this odd writer, mm. I was a cyberpunk. Then, oh, now I understand. You know, so I can I can appreciate this. You know, it's kind of fun to be a, a in a small band of outsiders, anyway. Well, that's been my whole career. Uh, I've always been a little bit out, out of the mainstream. Uh, you know, sort of esoteric, somewhat. I was able to keep getting my books published for all these years, though, so that was that was nice. It was nice, but it was wasn't all that easy. And it seems like you've had a fair amount of luck throughout your life, as most of us have. I mean, I. Seemed amazing. You got that one literary agent that could actually collect for you. Yeah, Susan Prodder. I did my first, uh, I think, three or four books without an agent. I dealt directly with the publishers, and uh, I think now it's harder to send uh, uh, over the transom manuscript to a publisher than it used to be. But back in the uh, very late '70s, the early '80s, you could mail them a manuscript and. Somebody there would look at it. They always use the phrase slush pile for the, the books that come in. <laughs> and uh, I've been talking, I was some younger writer was asking me advice, and I told her to just mail it in, and she said, Well, they won't even look at it unless you've gotten an agent, but then that gets you, that makes it very hard. Then it's a catch 22 because an agent doesn't really want an unpublished writer, so it's hard. But anyway, yeah, it's, I found. The whole, having a writing career, it was a lot harder than I expected it to be. I mean, the dream is you get one book published, it becomes a smash bestseller, and from then on it's, you know, you just, you just jumped off the cliff and you're just gliding. <laughs> and it's more like it's just this endless mountain, you know, and there's boulders rolling down. And it's, it's, it's been hard every, every step of the way. But it's... Another thing that people who are artists or writers know is that producing your art is, I mean, that's the main thing you want to do. But that's, I don't know, it's hard to put exact percent on it, but that might be maybe 50 or 60 percent of what you do. And a lot of the rest of it goes into just trying to hustle and, and get people to buy it, get people to read it, get people to hang it. It's really, it takes a lot of energy. But uh, I've enjoyed it. After Cyberpunk, I started writing, well, or, or all along, I was writing a style that I came to call transrealism. I mean, I will still write about computer things or internet things because I think about those things a lot. But I'm certainly not interested in, in any sort of doctrinaire, you know, anybody's conception of what cyberpunk might be. When I say transrealism, uh, it's a word I came up with actually after reading Philip K. Dick's novel, A Scanner Darkly. And you very much get the feeling in that novel that he's, uh, he's writing about his own life. Because this was a period when, you know, he was taking huge amounts of amphetamines and he was living in a an apartment in, in Oakland and somebody had gotten hold of a gallon, a hospital-sized bottle of, of speed pills, you know, and this would attract very unsavory p 
people who would come hang around with him. And uh, a scanner darkly is sort of like a whole riff off that kind of life. And in that novel, they refer to the drug they're taking as substance D, and D stands for death. And uh, the main hero can't decide if he's uh, a narcotics agent or a, a head. And it's all just, the thing is, he, he takes his life, which really was, you know, kind of frenetic and dreary at that time, and then he kicks it up a level by adding science fiction and, you know, making everything fantastic and strange. And that's, that's something I've, I've done. Many, many of my books have been like that. Uh, I'll take the experiences around me, which generally, they're not as bad as, as Phil's. You know, I'm not living in an apartment with a hospital-sized jug of amphetamines. But uh, like working at, I worked for a while at Autodesk, uh, the software company. And then I, I got laid off there. Their stock price went down. And uh, then I wrote a novel called The Hacker and the Ants. And it's about a guy who's working at a big software company. And then uh, these virtual ants infest all of the computers and televisions in the US. And when I wrote this one, it was in the, oh, I don't know, maybe around the early 1990s. And at that time, I could see that pretty soon computers chips would be inside televisions. But the average person didn't know that. you know. But you know, now you can just see all the things that a TV does. Clearly, it's got a chip in it. And then I thought it would be cool to have a sort of virus that lived in the TVs. And then for a while, all anybody could see is ants on their TV screen, and people are really pissed off. So, but that's. Uh, but in a way, it was it was the idea of taking this experience of working as a as a software engineer and then kicking it up to a science fiction story. And uh, so I do that a lot. And uh, I'll sort of use up certain periods of my life. It's, I don't usually go back and reuse a period. Hmm. If you look at fairy tales and science fiction, there's a lot of things that are sort of the same. A cloak of invisibility, people flying, people traveling back to the past, people hopping from here to there, people changing their appearance. And these are just themes that, that we like to think about. And we can cloak them in fairy tale settings or and we put them in science fiction, and then you make up some sort of pseudo-explanation of why you have this thing, and then people are comfortable with that. You know, they say, I'm not just reading a fairy tale, I'm reading science fiction, I'm educating myself. And, uh, but the thing, the deep question that interests me sometimes is why are we interested in these, these tropes, you could call them. And my sense is that they they mirror certain kind of basic human needs or certain psychic archetypes, like telepathy or mind reading, as you would call it in a fairy tale. I mean, why is that so important to us? Why do we write about it so much? And I think because telepathy is a symbol of the, the dream that somebody would perfectly understand you, that you could be in perfect communication with somebody, and without you having to labor to express yourself, uh, they would just experience your thoughts and you wouldn't be alone. And time travel, I think, I think all of us have this intense longing and nostalgia for certain eras of our life. Mm -hmm. Perhaps your childhood or your, your 20s. There are certain periods in your life when you were very happy and you really just long so much to go back there. You know? And uh, then you read about time travel and it sort of scratches that itch 
So that's, it does something for that. And flying, well, there's this sense of raising yourself above other people. Uh, I have this sort of recurrent dream where I'm flying. I've had flying dreams off and on my whole life. N never often enough. I'm very happy when I have one. <laughs> but there's one sort of flying dream I often have. I'll be in a, a room or in a hall, and I'll be able to fly, and I'll be floating up near the ceiling. And what always happens is the people around are completely uninterested in the fact that I'm flying. I'll say, hey, look, I'm up here, okay? I'm flying. I'm, I'm not like you. I, I'm at a higher level. And they never notice, you know, which is sort of my life story in terms of, <laughs> I mean, I'm writing this, you know, exotic, uh, strange fiction. And, you know, my neighbors, they're certainly not going to care about that, you know. And so, so that's, so transrealism is, you can sometimes write about something that's close to your soul, but uh, you put it into a science fiction context, and then it sort of pries it out of the matrix, and you can see it a little better, and then you can do things with it. Transrealism gives you freedom to do any darn thing you think of, seems like, and put it on paper and see if other people enjoy it. Well, you can't exactly do anything. You know, you don't want the book to be chaotic and to make no sense. Oh, oh so, okay. So, so one of the constraints in a science fiction novel is that you do, the reader does expect to have a, a plot. You know, you want to have well-rounded characters and a coherent plot that goes from one end to the other. And then, uh, and there has to be, even if you're expressing these human archetypes, you want there to be some sort of nice resolution. I've been working on a novel for the last year and a half. It's called The Big Aha. And uh, <laughs> that's a phrase I like. It's sort of an image of, you know, the thing. It goes back to this sort of 60s thing or this hippie thing. What is reality? I want to know the secret of life. I want to see all the visions. I want to experience the white light, the big aha. So, and one of the aspects of this book, a transreal aspect, is that uh, the main character, he's talking about his parents a certain amount and their characters. And uh, one of the things I'm setting up in this book, it's, you know, I still mourn for the, the deaths of my parents. You know, I still, oh. I'm, I think of them, I don't know, maybe not every single day, but, you know, whenever I think of them, you know, it's, you'll look back and you'll think, well, I'm more like them than I used to admit, you know, and they weren't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I do miss them, you know, it would, it would be nice to see them again. And, you know, I hope, who knows what happens when you die, you know, but I hope that it's in some way they're okay. That's sort of one of the, the things I'm dealing with in the big aha, but mm. in an extremely bizarre and science fictional way that I won't even go into. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, well, they've become eggs for an alien being, but <laughs> never mind. <laughs> So, yeah, so I've, I've enjoyed writing Transreal. Uh, I don't be as doctrinaire about it now as I used to because, like I was mentioning earlier, The Hacker and the Ants was very much about my experience of working at Autodesk. And the, first, the second novel I wrote, White Light, was very much about my experiences. I wrote that novel in, uh, I guess, 1979 or 1980. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, seven, yeah, seventy-nine or eighty, and uh, 
that novel was, well, it was about two things. It was about the hippie, the hippie thing about psychedelics and seeing the white light. But it was also about being a teacher at a small upstate college in New York State called uh, Geneseo. And so it was very much set in that particular place. And I went in and put in pretty much all the people I knew were in there as characters. So it's very, like you could kind of do an overlay, you know, a transparency, like lay it over and, and have the labels. And the books I do now, uh, well, partly, I think I mentioned earlier, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to go back and write another novel about teaching at Geneseo. I mean, that would be, I don't, it wouldn't be interesting for me. It would be boring. I mean, it, it, it's doable, but if I'm going to do an exact replica of some period of my life, then I'm not going to go and do that again. Mm. But I've sort of used up large swatches of my life in my transrealism. And now it's more that I'll go to some place where something that didn't actually happen to me, but a scene that I happen to know very well. And the characters, usually the main character will be to some extent like me, but maybe a more a more outspoken person than me that's usually more interested and also more reckless. And, and so then, so I'll model things in there. I, I like for the dialogue in my books to be very lively. Uh, that's a great failing in many, really in, in many novels of any kind, where you just read the, you just look down a page of dialogue and it's just, you know, a robot could have written it. It's just, everything's <laughs> the most obvious, obvious response. And when you're with somebody that you enjoy talking to, what makes it fun is that, you know, every sentence they say is a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a zap, a little mm. bit of a, a surprise. Well, you know, I just read your autobiography, Nested Scrolls. Oh, do me a favor, explain what Nested Scrolls means to people. This was an, uh, uh, an autobiography I wrote, I think I wrote it about four years ago. And... Uh, it was a period, I'd recently had some sort of medical emergency and had had it, and then it all cleared up. But the aftermath was that it became more clear to me than it had ever been that, that I would, you know, actually really die within, you know, the foreseeable future. And I could have died then and I didn't, it cleared up. But mm -hmm. it was one of these things where you're like, wow, you know. And I'd always thought I ought to write an autobiography before I die. And so then I thought, well, this is t it's time, you know, do it now. <laughs> and uh, the title, Nested Scrolls, it's, uh, well, one literary way of thinking of it is that when you're writing your autobiography, there's this aspect of there being stories within stories within stories. Oh. So you'll tell about something, some event you went to, and you run into somebody, and then you can, if you want to, tell more about your relationship with this person. And then you could even say, well, we were at such and such a place, and another time this happened to me. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things that makes writing an autobiography difficult. There's this branching quality to your life. Or any, it's a fractal, really, in the sense that any detail you focus on, you're going to see more stuff than you expected. Uh, uh, a sort of rough and ready definition of a fractal is something... When you blow it up twice as large, you see three times as much detail Ooh. instead of two times as much detail. There's this, that's what makes fractals interesting. And your life is like that. 
And so there's the Nestus Scrolls thing of I'm putting stories within stories. I've never really made my living as a writer. I mean, there was a period in, uh, I guess from 1982 to 1986, I was living in Lynchburg, Virginia as a freelance writer, and that was my only income. But my income was on the order of $10,000 a year, you know, which even in 1980-82, that, that wasn't a, a great amount of money. <laughs> we could live on it. My wife uh, had a teaching job. And, you know, even when I was doing my best, it's just I was never making enough money that I could totally live off that. We had the three children. We're living in California. You know, the amount I would make from writing would be maybe half as much as I needed, but never really enough. And this is, I think this is the case for all but a t tiny percentage of writers. So to fill out my writing income, uh, I spent 20 years being a computer science professor at San Jose State University. My original PhD was in mathematics, and I didn't actually know anything about computer science. But when I came there in 1986, at that time, computer science was new enough that it was still part of the Department of Mathematics. And they said, uh, well, why don't you teach computer science, Rudy? We'll pay you a little more. And it, it can't be any harder than, than Gödel's incompleteness theorem, you know, so <laughs> give it a shot. And so I did that, and I liked it. I enjoyed it. Uh, one of the things about mathematics that can be a little bit mentally taxing is that you can work on a proof for a long time. You can work on it for a year, and then there'll be this tiny little hole, you know, in the logic, and then what you have is, is worthless. <laughs> And you can have a computer program, and if there's something small that's wrong with it, the program might still work, and you just say, well, there's this little weird thing about it, and you can find some way to patch that up or isolate it. Another thing with computers that I liked was that it had this experimental aspect. In other words, I wasn't just alone trying to prove complicated things. I could keep doing experiments, putting code into the machine and looking at, at what I saw. My great interest in my programming and in the classes I taught was computer programs that had visual output. Hmm. So I was interested in, well, fractals, of course. And then uh, later I, I started teaching computer games, teaching students how to write computer games. I did that for a number of years. I even wrote a book about that. And that was fun because, you know, that's, in my opinion, that's one of the best ways to learn computer programming is to write oh. a computer game. Because it, it draws in pretty much every aspect, because you need to know how to do graphics, you've got to do a little bit of artificial intelligence, you really need to use object-oriented programming, or the thing just becomes such a mess, you can't mm -hmm. control it. And uh, if you can get the signaling from machine to machine happening, it's going to be good. And uh, so a lot of stuff. But uh, there was a particular kind of computer kind of graphic, a graphics program that I got interested in called Cellular Automata. And uh, the way a cellular automaton works, I usually looked at two-dimensional ones. So you could think of every pixel on the computer screen as being a little computer on its own. And each pixel would kind of do a localized computation. So you actually had this big parallel computation taking place. Every pixel was thinking. It's like a crowd of people. And the pixel would look at what colors its nearest neighbors were, and then you'd have some rule that it would adapt. 
A simple rule might be the voting strategy. It would look whatever color was most popular among its neighbors, it would uh, adopt that color. Wow. Or you could do what they call the heat rule. You could take the average of its neighbors, sort of like the way that uh, you know the temperature averages out. And then you could drive the heat rule, say, take the average and add one. Hmm. And then that would get exciting. If you got to a certain maximum, then it would go poof and go back down to zero. And you'd get this sort of bubbling effect on the screen. It would look a lot like boiling water. And there's one particular type of rule called the Belusov-Jabotinsky rule after two Russians, chemists, and they used to do this in Petri dishes with real chemicals. But there's a way to make these cellular automata where you get these scrolls develop on the screen. And this is, again, the reason that we're bringing up this very long excursus is because you asked me about the title, Nested Scrolls, of my autobiography. So you get these sort of ram's horns shape. It's as if you take a, like a regular mushroom and cut it vertically and look at the cross-section. You'll see this sort of thing like that, yeah. kind of a scroll, like a, a scroll that's curled up on both hands. Oh, yeah. And a fetus actually is shaped a little bit like that, too, or an ionic co capital on an ionic column. And the scrolls, they're, 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 they're moving when you're running this program. They're sort of turning, and then little scrolls are branching off and you'll get kind of scrolls nested inside the big ones so you'll have nested scrolls so that's the other meaning of nested scrolls in the title see one kind of perception that i had too before i got involved in programming computer graphics you imagine that anything that comes from a digital computer is going to be blocky and dull you know it's going to look like legos it's going to be gray <laughs> It's going to be a face on the wall, you know, yelling things. It's not going to be funky and, and gnarly and interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the revelations I had from my involvement is that you can have very gnarly, funky things. I mean, in a way, I mean, a plant, in principle, you can think of a plant as being somewhat like a computer. I mean, mm -hmm. if, we had, if we had the chops, we could make computers that act like plants. But looking ahead, I mean, this is a little bit of a side branch. It seems to me we're not actually going to push that hard in making machines be like plants because we already have plants. And the, the thing we would like, and this will be the big technology, I think, in, in the 21st century, is finding a way to biomod the plants or to, to gene design them, to wet wear engineer them. I mean, if you want a knife, then you plant a knife plant, and it extracts the ore out of the ground, and then you get something that looks like a corn cob, and you peel it open, and there's a carving knife, you know? Wow. Or you want a house, you get this seed, it's about the size of a pizza, you know, and you make the ground really, really wet, and you push this thing down in and pour in a lot of fertilizer, and then you get this, this green sort of bubble comes growing out, and, you know, and it's got transparent patches for the windows, and there's a hole where the door is going to be, and it's got veins of copper in it so it's internet connected and it's got a little pouch in the wall that you can use for a sink and so we're going to have built in solar panels sure well it's a plant <laughs> <laughs> you don't even need the panels it's green so it's yeah a grown home so that's right plants are solar panels yeah good grief yeah people talk about nanotechnology but once you go down to manipulating atoms or molecules, well, that's what biology does. Mm. So it's sort of reinventing the wheel. 
It's so it's more that we want to get involved with nature in a good way. And of course, that raises anxieties, you know, what if there's some gray goo that eats everything? And my tendency always is to think we shouldn't worry too much because all that the plants and animals who are alive have been doing for the last couple of million years is trying to take over the world. I mean, the ants are trying to take over, the mushrooms are trying to take over, the mold is trying to take over, and they're just fighting each other, and they have just this unlimited arsenal of things they know how to do. So I don't think we're going to make some little sort of wind-up toy, you know, a little quacking duck and set it loose, and, you know, it's going <laughs> to take over. It'll be like when uh, the War of the Worlds, when the Martians come, you know, the, the bacteria kill them. Oh, right. So, well, I don't know. I'm, I've always been, because I'm a product of, of an earlier era, I've always have, have been afraid that if, you know, the big bombs got dropped, the entire Earth will become radioactive and kill us all. Well, there's these fears that we have. Uh, I think in general it's hard to kill all of anything. You know? <laughs> There are species that go extinct. It does happen, but I think it might be sort of hard to kill everyone on Earth. Every human, though. Yeah, is. yeah. And we, you take we've the, already killed some species, though. Well, that's it. You, you can beat some species down, but we're pretty adaptable. I mean, they haven't been able to kill the cockroaches, you know. And <laughs> I think we're kind of on the order of cockroaches <laughs> in terms of uh, rats, cockroaches, humans. He's very... <laughs> cunning and adept but that's a whole that's a whole area i don't usually write science fiction about that whole theme it's not i don't know it's just it's not apocalyptic a, well i don't like to there's things that in the newspaper that people worry about and those aren't things that i like to write about oh because i don't enjoy watching the tv news i don't really enjoy reading the paper they're usually scaremongering and the reasons for that are usually kind of convoluted. I mean, they're, they're spreading fear about something because the business interests want something else to happen, or the political interests. I mean, it's, it's pretty much propaganda. Any, anything you see on television, I mean, the ads, the shows, the news, it's a, it's a cerebrus with three heads. It's just, it's all barking the same thing. You know, submit, buy, submit, buy. Well, we both like Burroughs a lot. And, yeah, uh, the master. I, I've been trying to think recently why it's going to endure into the future. And one of them is because, well, deep black humor against authoritarianism, not only in real authority figures, but most pathetically in kind of victims who subscribe to the values of the authority oppressing them and try and become little miniature versions of them. Yes. A, a lot of people are, he calls them the S word, that's four letters and it also ends with an S, five letters. A lot of people are these S words, darling, and um, he doesn't really say what can be done with them except to maybe exterminate them. He doesn't really say that. My introduction to Burroughs, my brother had this big supply of Evergreen Reviews and 
he was off at college and I would go into his room, which was in the basement, and I would look, look through the Evergreen Reviews. Uh, partly, I mean, I was a young teenager and I was looking for s sex stories to some extent. <laughs> this was my main mission there. I mean, that I liked the, I guess I came for sex and I stayed for Burroughs, you know. <laughs> I found one of his early pieces. It was an, an excerpt from Naked Lunch. Mm -hmm. It's the scene. It's the scene when there's two guys called Mark and John, and they're hanging each other. They're doing erotic hangings, and you know, I obviously growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, I'd never read anything like this in my life, and just right away it was the that this guy is just out of control. He'll just say anything. He's not under any constraint. He's you know totally in a an autonomous zone and just. And that deep, as you said, the, the anti-authoritarian black humor. One of my favorite books of his is The Yage Letters. I love, in general, I love Burroughs's letters. I really, really like them a lot. He has this, this wonderful voice. Uh, those are one of the things when I wrote Turing and Burroughs, I had a number of chapters written in the form of Burroughs writing letters to mm -hmm. somebody. And it was really great to, to sort of emulate that style. There he is outside. <laughs> You've talked to him quite a bit. I think you interviewed him several times. That is correct. I, I kind of brought out his passion for self-defense techniques and, and firearms, historical knowledge, that kind of thing. Burroughs, in one of his autobiographical pieces, he, he writes about meeting a guy who at, at his parents' house when he was a boy who was an expert at judo or some kind of art. He's saying that, you know, he knew how to kill somebody with a single touch of his finger. And, and then Burroughs looked at the guy and admiring him and saying, he looked extremely safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Burroughs was this double or triple sort of outcast because he was, you know, a junkie and he was gay and he was, politically, you know, just complete contempt for the government. Mm -hmm. And those are all things that I liked. Uh, I, I just liked what an outsider he was. Because if you're, if you're an artistic type or a writer, you do have this sense of being an outsider, that you're seeing the world differently than other people are. I mean, consensus reality has never really appealed to me. It's always, I always feel like I'd like to look at it in my own way and form my own opinions and uh, not just swallow whatever the... And he, he, Burroughs often writes about that. He'll talk about the marks staring up at the, you know, the lights on the skyscrapers and getting their messages from up there and <laughs> being controlled. And there's one aspect of the Burroughs legend that's always troubling is the fact that he shot his wife. I wasn't going to put that into my book, but then I realized, you know, you have to. If you're going to do Burroughs, you, you have to deal with this. And I didn't exactly want to do a thing where, well, you know, he wrote various things about it, uh, that an evil spirit possessed him or he was drunk. And you know, ultimately, none of those explanations is, is really entirely satisfying. You know, if, if, you, if you shoot your wife in the head, you, you've, you've really screwed up. And uh, 
So the way I worked at Turing and Burroughs was that they go down to Mexico City, they find a, they go root around in the graveyard. I found out where Joan was buried. There's a sort of, there's an interesting article, a PDF you can find online by James Grauerholtz that has a lot of pictures of the news articles in Mexico of that period and it has a real analysis of, of what actually happened. And that was really useful for me in writing the novel. And they went there and found the grave in, in my novel and then they go in and get a, a bone from her foot or something and they use it as a juju and they have, thanks to touring, they have this sort of universal, this undifferentiated tissue. That Burroughs used to like to write about undifferentiated tissue and that it would be this slug that would get onto you. And, and so they, they feed it the bone of, of Jane and then you know it turns into Jane and Jane's back and somehow they bring her spirit back into it. And then Jane shoots Burroughs in the head. So that's, you know, it's nice to balance. You righted it, it yeah. somehow in cosmic justice yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, And that made me feel better. And then he, at this point, has this, he's sort of made of undifferentiated tissue, so it doesn't, in fact, kill him, but he goes through some, some very weird hallucinations at that point. What was the uh, real science book that sold... You said in your autobiography, possibly half a million copies to date over the years. I think that would be Infinity of the Mind. I yeah. think that was my most popular book. Because there, there isn't any other book exactly like it. It's about the mathematical concept of infinity and the philosophical concept and the mystical concept. And it's done in a very, well I wrote my PhD thesis on things having to do with levels of infinity. So it's an area I'm, you know, very have a lot of professional knowledge of the mathematics of infinity. So, it's a book about infinity that has this, you know, scientific underpinning, which, I mean, you might find other books involving infinity, but they might not necessarily be. They might mm -hmm. simply be philosophical or mystical, and not have the mathematical aspect. And that, yeah, for a while that was a bantam New Age book, and that. That book sold a really a lot of copies. The Fourth Dimension is another of my science books that was extremely popular. Hmm. I don't even know what that is, The Fourth Dimension. I still don't get it. You just, <laughs> just need to get hold of the book. <laughs> Something to do with time or transcending time. Or People tend to think that. That was what <laughs> kind of set me off, was that you say The Fourth Dimension, and there's this idea of it being a mathematical Fourth Dimension. And then people say the fourth dimension is just time. Mm -hmm. But that's an evasion. That's, you're trying to get away from the reality of the fourth dimension as a, a spatial direction. And the, what they always do is they say, think of a square who slides around on a table. Suppose this is a living being, and the table you know, goes on long way. It's like a whole world. And he doesn't know about lifting up. He doesn't know that he could lift up and turn over. You know, turn into a mirror image. And so uh, you could say, then we sort of use that as this analogy that we build on. Well, we say, suppose we're sliding around, moving around in this three-dimensional space, but there could be some higher dimension, like the square can hop up and he disappears from this world, like the other people in this world can't see him, and then he comes back. We might be able to hop out into the higher dimension 
like you don't see me for a minute and then pop I'm over there by the sink you know hmm. and uh, see I'm here by the sink bam I'm there and you didn't see me in between because all you can see is what's in the tabletop so that's the mathematical fourth dimension I mean for mathematicians it's nothing you know we have formulas we say well let's just put in a fourth coordinate and then people say but wait isn't the fourth dimension supposed to be time and the idea is there's a notion of space-time and it is four-dimensional but this is just one way of using the fourth dimension mm. so we can say if you like we could say we have this extra space dimension if you like you can call that the if you insist on calling time the fourth dimension we can call the extra space dimension the fifth dimension if you want to but it would be easier to think of or which one you call the fourth dimension it's like we don't say height is the third dimension we say we are in a, a three-dimensional space you know I don't say width is the second dimension we just have a three-dimensional space and space-time is four-dimensional but there's also maybe a fourth dimension a spatial fourth dimension hmm. and that's the whole theory of, of space-time being involved as, as four dimensions that's what uh, that's what Einstein's relativity theory gets delves into that. Mm. So that's why I called my first book Geometry, Relativity, and the Fourth Dimension. Because it's, it's, there's the two fourth dimensions. There's the geometric one and there's the one of time. So that was a reasonable question of yours. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> you know, didn't you meet Timothy Leary once speaking of other dimensions? Like, yeah. I mean, I think Burroughs thought maybe the dreams are another dimension too but I won't try to argue that yeah well yeah I did meet Leary it was interesting there was this writer uh, this Hollywood screenwriter and his name's Marty and right now I can't think of his last name and he was a friend of the right the science fiction author Robert Sheckley mm. who's he was one of the great mentors in my writing career he right. was the first science fiction writer that I read who I thought this is a guy I want to write like humor yeah humor satire so to do humor in science fiction there's there's books like Douglas Adams the Hitchhiker's Guide and that's more of a oh I don't know it's more of a spoof it's not like a deep satire but Sheckley would write things that were funny but in this sort of cutting deeper satiric ironic way and I often put humor in my science fiction novels but it's more of the Sheckley type than of the Douglas Adams type. But anyway, so Sheckley and uh, Marty and I went over to Tim's house in Hollywood. I flew down because the idea was Tim Leary, he, he and I think Marty, who knew him somehow, they'd gotten the idea that Tim should be doing a TV show like Carl Sagan does Nova, Tim Leary would do the you know the new the new future or the new edge so, and be on sort of Mondo 2000 sorts of themes things like telepathy or of course psychedelics or mind amplification or uh, mm -hmm, synesthesia or shape-shifting your body these sort of you know far out spacey sort of Tim Leary type concepts one thing I did this was at the peak of my obsession with these computer graphics called cellular automata and this was early this was around oh I don't know maybe it was 1980 oh I guess it might have been 1987 
there's this special card I'd gotten to make cellular automator run fast if you had an, an IBM PC. It's like, people don't really do this anymore. It was this card about this big, and you take the computer apart, take the case off, and then put the card in, and start it up again. And then you could see these, you could see nested scrolls, you know, and you could see things seething and running around. And so I, for, so, for some reason, I really wanted to show this to Tim. I guess I wanted to impress him with something that I was involved with, and that would be visual that, you know, he could certainly, he could dig. Because I thought these were pretty psychedelic, these mm -hmm. images. I liked looking at them in the evening. And uh, so I took Tim Leary's computer apart, and I put the card in it, and he was suitably impressed. And from then on, he was... Well, he would just latch on to anything that he heard and make that part of his rap. So he would, was always throwing in the word cellular automata. From then on. <laughs> so I just felt happy that he did that. And we had some good ideas. Though Sheckley afterwards, he, he said, well, you know, Rudy, it's Hollywood. Whenever you get involved with the people down here, just get them to pay you as soon as they can and, and be grateful, you know, and don't get your hopes too high. There was... So, and as it turned out, this, it, it didn't get funded. I don't know. You know, it's, it's always very hard to get things funded down there. Sheckley also told me at one point they'd wanted him to write a TV sitcom about two robots running a filling station on Mars. And it's just, to me, it's hard, hard to imagine a better TV show than that written by Robert Sheckley. But uh, it never happened. Hmm. Then I got involved when I moved, being in California, I then, there was this magazine, it was called... Uh, it was called Mondo 2000, and it became quite popular. And there are these two characters, Are You Serious and Queen Mew, were involved with it. And I started hanging out with them to a certain extent. I wrote some things for Mondo. And eventually, when they were on the point of closing down, I helped Queen Mew and Are You edit a, uh, an anthology of their, their best articles called The User's Guide to the New Edge. Wow, that came out, huh? Yeah, I think that book sold quite a bit, too. It was on the cover of Time magazine when it came out. Ooh. It was awesome. And this guy, Bert, Bart Nagel, did a terrific graphic design. He was really one of the reasons Mondo 2000 was so cool, because Bart was such an amazing designer. Ah. And he was, he was one of the first people to be designing magazines using a computer. I think this, you know, again, we're talking 1987, I guess, and just nobody else was doing that at that point. Yeah. And so that's why he had this immense range of colors and fonts and shapes. Mm. But sometimes they would have parties. They used to have this wonderful, huge California craftsman house in Berkeley that they rented. And uh, those are, I guess, about the hippest parties I ever went to. Just really, uh, you were often there. I went, yeah, I went there. Yeah, and great gatherings of people. And I'd see Tim Leary there sometimes. Right. And, and he would always be really nice to me. Well, he was sort of a, you know, I guess perhaps a bit of a con man. You know, he's, he would win you over, you know. He, <laughs> if you talked to him, you're going to like him. And he's like, oh, it's such an honor to talk to you, Rudy. You know, <laughs> I don't think he'd ever actually read anything of mine. But it was really nice to have him being so pleasant. And uh, just a really, he's just a man. He's had this, this charismatic quality. He really did. I saw him once near, closer to the end of his life. Uh, that was on a panel. It was somewhere weird, like the Fashion Center in, in San Francisco. It was really dark in there. I don't, Are You Serious was on the panel, and Tim 
I don't really remember what it was all about, but I remember talking to Tim beforehand. and uh, I only took LSD once or twice in my life, I guess maybe two or three times, but not more than that, because to me it was such a, a really powerful experience. And I'm glad I took it. It was interesting, and it gave me things that, that I still think about, you know, mm -hmm. the, the white light, the vision of, of the one, the universe talking to me. But, you know, it's like I need my brain for other activities. <laughs> I, I can't do this. And Tim, of course, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, he, I'm, I'm sure God knows how many times he took it. And I remember I was asking him about this. You know, we, we were killing some time before the, the panel. I said, Tim, you know, how can you do this? I mean, this is like this soul-devouring experience. You know, it's like an, an ordeal poison, an initiation ritual. You know, you get through it. How can you keep doing that? And, uh, I, I mean, I sort of admire you, that you, you have the, the psychic stamina. And he, <laughs> he didn't really give me a precise answer. Instead, he launched into a story about a trip he'd taken two or three days ago, and he wow. didn't, ended up sitting with a homeless woman on a park bench in L.A. and talking to her for hours and hours, and the glow about her, you know, the godlike aura that she had. And <laughs> but he, uh, in his own way, he was sort of an admirable figure. He did things that you know, everybody else was scared to do. Even ran for governor. <laughs> he ran for governor? A long time ago. Yeah. Let's talk about your painting. Um, I don't want to call it a career, but it's certainly a passion on it's, some level. It's something, yeah, I got interested in painting. I think it was 1999. Uh, I was writing a novel about the painter Peter Bruegel. Let's see. It says here when I started. Let me just look. Yeah, 1999. And uh, always worshipped Peter Bruegel, wonderful artist. Uh, and people will argue with me about how to pronounce the name. Uh, for some reason in the U.S. there's this misconception that you should say Bruegel. And mm -hmm. that's not right. If you go to, to Belgium, where he lived, they say Bruegel. You know, so they say it more like a K, but Bruegel is, in my opinion, it's closer, but I'm from Kentucky, so I'm not really the best person to ask. But anyway, uh, I was writing a, this is my one non-science fiction novel. It's a historical novel about Bruegel's life, and it was called As Above, So Below. And the reason I chose that title was because Bruegel, it's an old, uh, it's an old mystical kind of saying, an occultist saying, and the meaning of it is that things we see on Earth are echoing the things that are in the large universe. So uh, a puddle echoes a sea, a, a rock mm. echoes a planet, a person echoes God's mind, as above, so below. And I think of that in connection to Bruegel because his paintings, uh, they'll often be, sort of show the whole cosmic universe, something like the hunters in the snow or the return of the herd, these landscapes, and you just feel like there's such this mm. immense compassion and everything is in there. So I, I wanted to write his life story because I loved him so much, and very little is known about him. All that they have is 
like one page that a guy wrote about 50 years after he died. Mm. And uh, so I wanted to learn how it felt to paint. So my wife already was a painter, but then together we went and took a class at the, the art museum in San Jose State. Not San Jose State, just San Jose, the art museum. They had an evening class, and so I started learning, uh, I think it was oil painting initially. And uh, I found that I liked it. And uh, I'd never done painting, and so I had the idea that it was something I couldn't do. It was too alchemical. It was some process I couldn't master. And over time, I came to learn that even if you, quote, can't draw, I mean, you've, it's paint. You keep changing it until it looks right. You know, and you, you <laughs> it's, it, it's doable, you know. And the other issue, of course, is uh, things don't have to be photorealistic. It's, everybody knows that's been done, and, but it, it should look good. So uh, I've done, as I say, I've done about 100 paintings since uh, 1999. So I don't paint at a very prodigious rate because that's been, uh, well, 15 years, uh, 14 years. So um, maybe I'm doing a painting every month or two. And sometimes I'll, I'll do, I'll, you know, send this since I won't do one for six months, and then I might be speeding it up a little and doing two a month. But it's something that I enjoy. Uh, most of my activities, the things involving web design, ebook building, and even writing is, is in a way a digital thing because there's the keyboard, there's the letters. So the writing isn't really fully digital. It's not like computer programming. You know, but there is, because you're doing feelings and sense and all these things, but there is this sort of digital aspect to it. And uh, paint, paint is just, you know, it's these colored mud. You, you're smearing it around. And I'm a scientist, so I can understand theories of how to mix colors, but I always find I really can't think about those theories when I'm trying to mix a color. It's just, it's not productive to think that way. It's better just to move... Just go on instinct and, you know, mix little bits of color together with my palette knife till I see what I like. And I will always find something I like. And uh, so the things I paint are, uh, sometimes they relate to scenes that uh, might be in one of my novels. Uh, I'm not averse to putting a UFO into my painting. Uh, I always feel like UFOs haven't really gotten enough artistic activity. You know, I think there ought to be more novels and paintings of UFOs. Hmm. The, the ones we have are more like outsider art or folk art, but it's a, it's a really a powerful transreal symbol for the other. Anyway, uh, but so I like painting and uh, sometimes I'll even do a landscape. You know, I'll, I'll go out all plein air and, and set up the canvas and hmm. try to do my best at capturing it. But then I am sometimes I will throw in a UFO or something, you know, you do, it's kind of hard to resist sometimes, putting a little <laughs> curry. <laughs> the whole thing, one of the non reasons... Non-verbal, too. Yeah, non-verbal. One of the reasons we like to be creative is because it, it turns off our minds. Hmm. Or it, I mean, you know, there's all the things you worry about, the gerbil wheel that you, you run around when you have insomnia or something, it's squeak, 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 squeak. And then when you start, when you're doing something creative, it's, you get absorbed in it and you forget yourself. That's really one of the goals 
of an artist is to forget that they exist. Uh, there's a, f a funny line in, uh, there's a movie, Art School Confidential, with John Malkovich in it. Hmm. It's a cool movie, an indie type movie. And he's, he's playing a, an art professor who likes his art. And uh, he's talking about why he does it. And he says he's looking for the narcotic moment of creative bliss. And so the narcotic moment of creative bliss. So that's when you're absorbed in the work and you're not, uh, you know, you're not worrying about the usual things you worry about. And I like comparing painting and writing. Uh, one thing about painting, in writing, if you screw something up, assumingly you've been professional enough to save the last version, you can get back to that, you know. Or if you're using a word processor, if you screwed it up within the last hour, you can, you know, do undo, 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 right. and get back there. Uh, now, painting, it's harder. I have a friend, we were talking about this, and he said, well, the way you paint is you get the painting looking pretty good, and then you ruin it, and then you fix it, and then you ruin it again, and then you fix it. So every time you change it, you feel like you've ruined it. I mean, I'll start with a nice background, you know, kind of just a, a nice color field, but with subtle play and maybe a circle, you know, that might, I'll think, this is so nice. And then I'll start to draw a person in there, and I've ruined it, you know. So then I fix it, fix and fix the person until they look okay. And then it looks good again. And then, but there needs to be some other stuff. So I'm going to start start putting some objects here. Oh God, I've ruined it, you know. So it's uh, writing isn't exactly like that. It's more you feel like you're continually making it better, or it's like you ruined it in the first place. Well, ruination, I guess, is part of creation. Yeah, creative destruction, yeah. Well, we've come to the end of our counterculture hour, Rudy, so thank you very much for illuminating us and your creative history. Thanks, Vail. It's really nice to be here with you.